All right, we are back. Uh, we're huge consumers in this program of trivia, and it's fair to say great fans of trivia books. So I thought in the lark here I'd grab one of my favorites, just pull a few items out of it just for the heck of it. In this case, I'm referring to the complete unabridged Super Trivia Encyclopedia by Fred L. Worth. First item I saw when cracking open the book was the pseudonym of the Western outlaw George Leroy Parker. He was joined in the Hole in the Wall gang by Harry Longbaugh, and they were both better known as the aforementioned Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I'm sorry to report when quizzed about the real identities of Longbaugh and Parker. I drew a blank. This is unfortunate because I was asked the question by Jimmy Kimmel, who was at that time the sidekick slash announcer on the Win Ben Stein's Money program. Courtesy of drawing that blank and one or two others, I failed to tie Ben Stein and was thus out three grand. Ouch! I'm happy to report that I did win some of Ben Stein's money, 1500 bucks. But I had a real shot at beating him. Well, anyway, I'm going to blame Jimmy Kimmel for how he read the question. All right, flip another page, and I find the phrase, Klautu Barada Nikto. Does that ring a bell? Well, we hope it does. Those are the words that stopped the huge robot Gort from destroying the Earth, as he'd been programmed to do if necessary in the 1951 movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. As we hope you recall from that great movie, Klautu was played by Michael Rennie, who had come from outer space with his eight-foot robot Gort, traveling 250 million miles in five months. After arriving on Earth and being greeted with a hostile reception, he decided he'd better go undercover. So he takes up the identity of Mr. Carpenter and boards at a house on Harvard Street in Washington, D.C. In case he's killed, Gort is assigned to destroy the world. Fortunately, Patricia Neal is able to recall the correct words that stop him. Now, here's an entry in the trivia encyclopedia I found curious. Under Colorado Boulevard, it said, Street on which the little old lady from Pasadena, which is the 1964 hit song by Jan and Dean, is a terror by racing her car. An alternative description might be the street down which the Rose Bowl parade passes. But the beauty of a thing like a trivia encyclopedia is that it really gets you thinking about things and other bits of trivia. I do know for a fact that Jan and Dean were listeners to the Jack Benny radio program. And during one of the episodes, Jack was trying to buy a car, which I suspect was being sold by the inimitable Frank Nelson, best known for replying, Yes, when asked a question. And Jack was informed that this car had been owned by a little old lady from Pasadena, who evidently only drove the car to church on Sundays. And uh, Jan and Dean ran with it. It's the little old lady from Pasadena. Now you know the rest of the story. And to add our own trivia, that was the catchphrase made famous by former radio legend Paul Harvey. 
All right, at the top of the show, we alluded to how we might return at some point to this issue of, uh, well, what was portrayed in the movie The Post, questions of the public's right to know, etc. And uh, fresh from today's headlines, well, at least from the January 16th issue of the San Francisco Chronicle, in an article entitled How U.S. Stifled Stories on Spying, we have this. When two New York Times reporters learned in 2004 that the George W. Bush administration was secretly wiretapping Americans and collecting their phone and email records, the reporters' attempt to publish their findings were thwarted by the administration's intense and successful lobbying of their editors. I'm reading a piece by Bob Ajelko in the Chronicle, who notes that in that effort, the Republican president had an unlikely ally, Representative Jane Harmon, Democrat of Los Angeles. She was, in fact, the senior Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee. Harmon is now the president of a research organization in Washington and was asked recently about her intervention. She expressed no regrets. She told the Chronicle, There are times when classified materials must be protected. Mr. Miller expresses doubt that this was one of them. And in this I join him. The article notes that details of the far-reaching, legally unauthorized surveillance program remained secret until the New York Times published the article in late 2005, more than a year after Bush was narrowly, and we would add dishonestly, elected to a second term. Notes the article, the program's secrecy made court challenges virtually impossible, except for the rare occasions in which surveillance led to criminal charges. Congress authorized the program finally in 2008 while narrowing it somewhat. The article notes that the newspaper's interactions with administration officials and Harmon's role were described by former Times reporter James Risen. He did so this month in The Intercept, the investigative publication where he now works. We would point out that pushing stories like this is not a good journalistic career move. James Risen has said that he and Times colleague Eric Lichtblau had learned in the summer of 2004 that the National Security Agency, also known as the NSA, had, with Bush's approval, wiretapped Americans in cases of alleged terrorism without legally required judicial warrants and was also collecting mail and phone records of millions of us. The story of the program known as Stellar Wind was ready for publication before, before the November 2004 election, when, as you may recall, Bush was on the ballot. But NSA director Michael Hayden and other administration officials told the Times editors in phone calls and face-to-face meetings that publication would damage national security and endanger lives. Risen has said that officials were joined in an effort by Jane Harmon one of a handful of congressional leaders who had been briefed on the program and enlisted by the White House to contact the Times. Jane Harmon has been described as a generally moderate Democrat, but she did support the war in Iraq. We should note that it's pointed out at the end of the article that George Bush himself got involved in this. In December 2005, when they did decide to publish it, he tried to stop it, told the Times publisher Arthur Sulzberger that there would be blood on your hands if the story was published. To the Times' credit, Risen has said in his article that the editors decided on publication after learning the administration had considered going to court to stop them. 
Risen and Lichtblau were awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 2006 for their reporting. While Bush administration officials criticized the publication of the story, they never cited any resulting terrorist act or damage to national security. High officials tend to have a problem distinguishing between damaging national security and damaging their reputations. Now, we think water issues are very important to the state of California. I do note that uh, I traveled down to SoCal last week and was rather stunned to note that the development in the great basin that is Los Angeles and the nearby environs, well, that development just is going on like a house of fire. We made fun of this program some years ago of the town called Moreno Valley, which I'd never heard of when I lived 30 miles from its present location uh, a few decades ago. I'm sure back in the day it was a village of, you know, a couple thousand people. Now it's a town of tens of thousands built out in the dry scrublands of Southern California, which we remind you has enough water for one million inhabitants, even though it currently has something like 22 million people. While driving between Riverside and Ontario, I noticed the sign for another town I'd never heard of, Churunga Valley. It, too, was sprawled out in the high desert. Curious about the number of inhabitants, I took a good look at the highway sign to observe to my horror that 101,000 people live in Harunga Valley, a town that I'd never heard of. Every so often, in moments of sanity, some people over in our state capital in Sacramento try to um, require developers to ensure that they will have a water supply for the homes they're going to build before they're allowed to build them, and it's inevitably voted down. And I have to realize that, that part of the problem I have with all of this is that I approach this issue from the perspective of somebody who was trained in biology, also medicine, but biology. When I discuss these matters with people who are trained in things like economics, I realize the thought process is different. And I just can't help it. When I look at a situation such as that of the Island Republic of Nauru, my perspective is that, well, let's see, you've stripped all of your forests away, gouged holes throughout your whole island to render it almost completely uninhabitable, and are now facing a complete econo- ecologic and economic, and are now facing a complete ecologic catastrophe. I think an economist's perspective on that would be, oh my God, look at the amount of money that was extracted from that island. At one point, it had the world's highest per capita income. Now, an economist might note that due to poor economic management, they now lost all their dough and were broke and had no island to live on. But I think in the end, they would look at the whole thing as just, you know, an investment gone wrong. And Ryan Sarlo last October, which was about the Delta Tunnels, noting that the South State, L.A., is the key to whether this abortion is going to go forward. The article is all about risk benefits and who's going to get the money and who's going to get the control and the water and, you know, and, and Metropolitan Water District may balk because they're not having enough control and, and they're going to have to spend X amount of money. And it talks about how bad Jerry Brown wants this because, after all, it was his father who originally signed the historic 1960s agreement that, uh, that set the stage for the construction of the state water project. 
Oh, and by the way, in driving down to Los Angeles, uh, I did observe that they are continuing to be hell-bent for leather in planting more almond trees where there is water coming out of these state and federal water projects. And every so often, we, we feel the need to remind you that every almond you eat requires 1.1 gallons, gallons of water. Anyway, the whole question of at what point California is going to run out of water is, is not addressed in this article or almost anyone that you run into. Though we do have to laugh at how they refer to this as a water fix. This is going to fix the, the ecology of the Delta while also blending uh, the needs of the fish with the needs of people. And uh, how do you think that one's going to stack up? For the upteenth time, we would ask the Department of Water Resources, which is in a bit of hot water right now over the fact that uh, there are allegations that the spillway up at the Oroville Dam uh, was built in some really crappy rock, and the contractor at the time warned that this was a potential future problem. That's a story we need to report a little more about in the future, not today. But what all this is leading to (laughs) is The article from the East Bay Times I read, January 24th, about how Cape Town, South Africa, is running out of water. Article by John Wolfuck poses the question, could it happen here? They note that on April 21st, the provincial capital of the Cape province, after three years of drought, is slated to be the first major city to run dry. The question was then asked, do we have protections here in California to prevent this kind of disaster? To quote from the piece, a dystopian drama is unfolding in Cape Town, a popular tourist destination of nearly 4 million on the coast of South Africa that in April is expected to become the modern world's first major city to run out of water. This comes after three years of drought in South Africa. The article notes that for Californians who panted through five years of record drought before last winter and have seen a fairly dry winter so far this year, well, raises the worrisome question, could it happen here? State officials and water experts think not, or at least that things would have to get a whole lot worse than they did in the last drought. The article quotes Leon Zepetki, executive director of Water in the West at the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment, saying, I hate to say don't fret, because who knows, but the chances of it happening in California are very, very low. The reason Zeptuki said is that most California cities draw water from, a, from highly diverse sources. We have an interconnected network of local and state reservoirs and wells with aggressive groundwater recharge and conservation measures such as wastewater reuse and stretching supplies. His quote is saying, for a major city to run out of water, we'd have to have a drought a lot worse than the one we just had, which he then had to admit is quite possible, noting that nobody predicted that kind of drought in South Africa. Now, Cape Town, which I would hasten to add is one of the prettiest cities I've ever seen, is a diverse town of nearly 450,000 in a metro area of 3.7 million. It is not unlike many of our coastal cities here in California with a Mediterranean climate and some sandy beaches that draw legions of tourists. Uh, By comparison, about 3 million live in the San Diego area. But after a three-year drought, these six reservoirs that supply Cape Town's water supply are overtaxed. 
compounding that as a recent spike in population, sound familiar, and a failure to plan alternative water sources, sound familiar, and a refusal by some 60% of residents to abide by water limits, hmm, recurring themes here, are also blamed for the impending crisis. As you will recall, at the height of our drought a couple of years back, our wise governor, Jerry Brown, announced that agriculture was exempt from having to conserve on water. And if I had more time, I'd go dig out the paperwork we had on hand for the program we did, well, the many programs we've done on on water abuse in California, and pull out that Mother Jones article about Paradise Farms and how this one corporation growing pistachios and pomegranates and almonds uses more water than all of Los Angeles and all of San Francisco. Anyway, back to South Africa. Things are looking bad. They're calling day zero, April 21st. That's when Cape Town's reservoir levels are going to drop so low that residents will then have to stand in line at 200 collection points under armed guards to be rationed 6.6 gallons of water a day each. Residents are currently being asked to use no more than 23 gallons a day, a figure that will drop to 13 gallons in February. By comparison, the average American uses 88 gallons of water a day at home. Now, it should be noted that towns in California have run out of water. The last drought uh, saw, well, most notably East Porterville, a town in Tulare County of 7,300 people, run out of water. This article does remind us that Jerry Brown did order a 25% reduction in urban water use across California. The claim is made in this article that state officials are monitoring and learning lessons from problems overseas, such as Australia's decade-long millennial drought and the drought in Brazil that almost saw Sao Paulo, population 12 million, run dry. The city got rescued by rains a couple of years ago. Article quotes an official saying that um, part of the problem is that water officials are prisoners of the length of our experience with weather. In Australia, Brazil, and now Cape Town, the officials there were stunned by the fact that the dry spells lasted as long as they did. California's last drought also lasted longer than those in recorded history. As reported on this program, the article notes that um, the state has seen much longer droughts over what we can determine from the geological record. Our understanding, as reported on this program, is the estimates for California's water use or rainfall are, are based on records that have been kept for the past century, century and a half. When they've taken a look at the last 4,000 years worth of tree rings, the last 40 centuries, they determined that the 20th was the third wettest. Factor global warming into this, and I just don't know how they're going to be doing in Harunka Valley when things dry up. I do know one thing. When Harunka Valley runs out of water, they're going to go take it from the delta. The fish be damned. And in a surprisingly similar story, let us, let us fly over to Egypt. Well, no, no, not literally. At least not until the eclipse in 2027. At any rate, over in Egypt, the president of the country sought last week to defuse tensions with Ethiopia and Sudan, reassuring them that his country was not meddling in their internal affairs or planning to go to war against them. Very reassuring. 
Why all this talk of war? Well, Egypt has expressed mounting alarm over a soon-to-be-completed upstream dam in Ethiopia that Cairo fears could cut into its share of the Nile River. I think that's pretty much a certainty, which provides nearly all of its fresh water. It has accused Sudan of siding with Ethiopia and reviving a long-standing border dispute. But, uh, <laughs> perhaps not completely reassuringly, President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi has said that Egypt's strategic choice was peace, not war, um, at least until the water runs out. Egypt is saying that Ethiopia is not doing enough to ease its concerns about the effects of filling the reservoir behind their dam. Now, we here at Radio Parallax are quite unclear in what the Ethiopians could be doing to ease the concerns of filling their reservoir except to not fill the reservoir. Ethiopia is saying the $5 billion dam is essential for its economic development and argues that the vast majority of its 95 million people, which lack electricity, which the dam's hydroelectric plant will generate. Egypt is also accusing Eritrea, a regional ally of Egypt, of training rebels to carry out sabotage attacks on their dam. It should be noted that Egypt, with a population roughly equal to Ethiopia's, has traditionally received the lion's share of the Nile's water under agreement reached in 1929 and again in 1959. Other Nile Basin nations review those agreements as unfair, saying they ignore the needs of their own large and growing populations. This is what we might label as the definition of Trouble brewing. In a moment like this, I think we need to pause. At least we here in the booth need to pause and say, how much good do we do by talking about all of this? And my answer is, well, it's really impossible to say. We have to take the position that when people in the state say stupid things, things that are obviously cover stories and lies that it is necessary to call them out on it. Just because somebody has practiced so that they can with a straight face say that they're going to take water out of the Delta and thereby improve the quality of the water in the Delta well we'd say you just have to deal with it with derision. It is necessary to point out that that can't possibly be true. Anyway in the five minutes we have left I could talk about how the administration has opened up a new branch of the Health and Human Services, which is supposed to protect medical providers who refuse to participate in abortion, assisted suicide, or other procedures which may be legal but run counter to their personal religious beliefs. But I don't want to end on that. I want to pull up some science stories. Let me take a minute here and see if I can find something because those always seem to, I think, lighten our mood. After all, we have to do something about the fact that uh, the fact that Democrats and liberals are proposing that the grievous error of making a reality star president might be countered by making another reality star president. E.G. Oprah Winfrey. Well, let's, let's, let's just not go there. Yes, she'd probably be an improvement. 
But, you know, the same might be said for Chumley from Pawn Stars. A story that's a little bit off. It turns out that some birds of prey have learned to control fire. Although control may be a little bit of an overstated word, but this is a skill we thought was unique to humans. But it turns out they've observed birds intentionally appearing to spread wildfires in order to flush out prey. This finding hints that raptors may have beat us to the use of fire. Now, there are many stories about Australian birds of prey wielding fire, according to ornithologist Bob Gosford from the Central Land Council in Alice Springs, Northern Territory. This comes from New Scientist. Uh, most come from Aboriginal rangers managing natural fires in northern tropical savannas. The three species mentioned are black kites, whistling kites, and brown falcons. The claim is the birds pick up burning twigs from existing fires and drop them elsewhere to start new blazes, which would flush out prey hidden in the bush. In effect, the birds are using burning sticks as tools, at least that's the idea. This story first got reported in 2016 and got global coverage, although we missed it, <laughs> but biologists doubted that birds were deliberately doing this. But now, Ghostford and colleagues have gathered 20 eyewitness accounts of birds starting fires on purpose. They cite a former firefighter who wrote a paper about this. He recounts fighting a blaze near Kakadu, Northern Territory, in the 80s, only to find new blazes on the other side of the road. As he tried to extinguish that fire, he saw a whistling kite 20 meters away carrying a smoking stick, which it dropped, creating another spot conflagration. The firefighter wound up extinguishing seven new blazes started by the birds. How about that? All right, final item from the world of science, in this case astronomy. You've no doubt encountered the news that the last day of the month, this month of January, will feature what's being billed as a rare celestial event last seen in 1866, so the claim is. <clears throat> this is the result of a supermoon, a blue moon, and a total lunar eclipse taking place simultaneously. A so-called supermoon is the lunar body at perigee. It's the closest approach to the Earth. I think they're overstating the case. This full moon will be 16,000 miles closer to us than it is on average, which will make it 14% brighter than the usual full moon. It will occur as the second full moon of the month, since the first full moon was like the second which they're calling a blue moon, which is kind of arbitrary. But the fact that an eclipse is taking place that night is what really makes it interesting. The calendar day it falls on is a bit irrelevant, and the fact that it's closer to the Earth isn't that important. But eclipses are cool. And of course, during some lunar eclipses, when the moon is especially red, it's called a blood moon. So I guess it's a blood moon, a blue moon, a super moon, and an eclipse. Here in the American West Coast, the eclipse will be taking place as sunrise is approaching. Not so good for those of us who are not morning people. Looks like the best spot to see it uh, may be somewhere near Hawaii or maybe Australia. I'm not quite sure. At any rate, mark your calendar and consider getting up early to take a gander. That's it for time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan.
You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your host, your faithful host, Douglas Everett. See you next week.